Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Uncontentables podcast. I'm Pete Neal and this is podcast number 25 and it's also the part two of the interview with John Guillory. Um, so those who that listened to the last podcast he was on, so John Guillory was a platoon commander during the Vietnam War and he served as an infantry officer uh, with the uh, 7th Cavalry. So, John, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you, Pete. <laughs> it feels like we're, we were just away for two minutes. <laughs> so... John, so we've uh, gone through all the basic training, um, your advanced infantry training, um, your process of when you actually arrived in Vietnam, uh, when you got assigned to unit as well. And uh, in the last episode, we talked about um, op- conducting operations, where you said about doing certain destroy missions, uh, and also a bit about the uh, base camp, uh, what life was like at a fire base, and then subsequently a base camp as well, where the two worlds are quite different so when so when when you was uh so when did you actually get r&r while you was over there i uh i stayed in country i didn't take an out out of country r which i really regret you know they didn't i i mm-hmm. think that if i would have had it to do over again i would have done uh, i would have gone to australia because it because it, it, it was uh reviewed by everybody that went to be a fantastic location. Yeah. I stayed in country and, and uh, didn't take R and R, but um, so I you know, shame on me. I, I said I, I think that was a mistake on my part. Uh, but, uh, oh, I, so you, so you never went anywhere at all? No, like I said, oh. I, I, I uh, I've got a one of the a friend is artillery uh, FO lieutenant uh, went to Australia and he's still living there now. I mean, he didn't. He came back to Vietnam after R and R, but then he enjoyed Australia so much, he eventually immigrated to Australia and, and became a, an Australian citizen. So, uh, what did you get up to in Benoit on R and R? Just relaxed, kicked back, drank. You know, didn't do much of anything, but just uh, uh, unwound. And uh, you know, I was. Uh, you know, again, didn't um, didn't see the need to, to leave the country, and uh, it was just a three day thing. So, and uh, I wasn't far from my guys, so if, uh, I was needed for anything. I think that was also a factor. I, uh, I, uh, and maybe it's me a little arrogant on my part that I thought that they uh, they couldn't live without me, but, but I, <laughs> I, uh, I uh, didn't really feel I needed to to go anywhere. But like I said, I, I looking back on it. I almost regretted it as it was happening, but uh, it was one of those things. Like I said, I, I I wish I would have gone to Australia. So so, how long was you on R and R for? Was that like a week or? Yeah, it was typically yeah. a week, and and that was one of the things of, for the most. There are quite a few guys that went on R and R that extended their R and R that you know not legally, but uh, <laughs> you went. Took a week and turned a week into a couple of weeks or ten days. There were even a few guys that went on R and R and never came back. That uh, you know, I don't know where they went, but uh, they worked their way back to the states. And we uh, another oddity, and this is an anecdotal thing. 
Um, Hawaii was always considered a bad luck R and R. We had a lot of guys that were married that R and R in Hawaii because their wives could meet them in Hawaii. Yeah. And, and many of the guys that went to Hawaii and R and R, and I don't know statistically how correct that is, but many of the guys that went to R and R in Hawaii uh, didn't came back and got uh, were killed. And people, oh, wow. you know, their rumors were is that they went to R and R in Hawaii, they and then they came back and were distracted, and that's you know whether mm. that's true or actual or whatever, but that was what was rumored. There's so many, you know, that's only about Vietnam. There are so many urban legends yeah. that are that come up, that, you know, the the you know the the reasons for this or that. And you don't know what is fact factual and what's you know uh, you know what what is just you know baloney or what's you know mythical. Yeah, like I said, he's got all these different urban myths. Because I know um Hawaii was a popular one for the for the married men to go to Hawaii. Um, because like you said, because the wives could uh, meet them out there, but maybe it was uh like you said, they just switched off. You know, they got they come back, they send the wife come back, and I suppose it could be go on to that uh sort of thing of yeah, you know, they were on there, um, you know, depending on where they were in that tour as well. It could be like it could be coming to like almost to the end of it, depending on yeah. when their R and R came through. So it might be because they're so close to the end, it's like, well. I've just I've just seen my wife. Um, I've got two more months to go. Um, that's it. I'm done. But then, like you said, probably they can yeah. switch off. Psychologically, I mean, I, I you know, mm. I don't know again that, but if it's how much truth is put in mm. that, it, but it, you know, when you think about the you know, the logic of it, it does seem like where it could be you know some truth to that where you 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 start to think about, and I think I used to have this thing, I call it being combat effective. Uh-huh. And, I, and I'll explain that. I Combat effective could be a 12 month, if your tour is 12 months long, being combat effective could last 12 months. Being combat effective could be could last two weeks. And what that means is, I, I think in Vietnam, you get over there and your head is right. And you, you, can, you can function for 12 months and be combat effective because you think you're thinking on your feet, you're you're, you're competent, you're aware, you're alert, and and all of a sudden, in, in some point in time, whether it's six months, twelve months, two weeks, or whatever, you start thinking: if I do this, I might get killed. If I do no. that, I might get killed. You start overthinking things, or you start delaying things, or reacting to things, and you start reading things into things, situations, and it might affect your performance. And that affecting your performance could mean be detrimental and be life-threatening. Mm. And so I think sometimes people that become combat ineffective could make them, you know, detrimental to themselves and the people around them. Because you don't do the same things the same way you did them when you were combat effective. And, and that may be more urban myth than, than reality, but that's why I used to think that, is that people that that are squared away all of a sudden become flaky. You know, they all yeah. of a sudden start doing things that they wouldn't normally have done six months ago or three months ago or whatever. Maybe being a bit more careful or something like exactly. thinking more before they do some up. Or cautious and cautious mm. in the wrong ways. Mm. Being foolhardy is not smart. No. But overly cautious to the point where you're making decisions that maybe aren't prudent decisions. Uh, may not be good as well. Oh, yeah. It's that balance, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So you've, um, so you did your, so what, so at what point in your tour did you get your R&R? Roughly, uh, do you think? About the, like, three months before I left. Uh-huh. So I was quite, quite close to the end then. Yeah. I think, so, I don't know why, I think most guys don't, it's, just, it's usually between six the six months and three months before he goes, that, that three-month gap, you go anywhere in there. And uh, I, I and I don't know why, and I don't know if there's a, and I've never heard the reasons why, but it always seems to fall on that. You had to be there at least six months 
and typically anywhere between six months and nine months seem to be the norm. Mm-hmm. But now I, I don't know the rhyme or reason for that. Mm. Yeah, I wonder why that was. Why well, I say it? No, I no yeah, idea. Yeah, in, or maybe it's the um, maybe they thought some of the combat effectiveness of, of, of a soldier be six months. So like like you're saying about the combat effectiveness is maybe they're yeah. saying six months. But you know, when you get to that six month phase, that's when you need to get that sort of break out of it. Maybe you need a break. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, so you've um, so you, you had so you had your R and R, and you went back to your men. So when so as so as a platoon commander, um, was there any rules that you kind of set yourself to be the sort of best platoon commander that you could be while you was over there? Well, I, I think I, I try to make sure that I had every. Uh, that we had everything we needed uh, to get our jobs done, uh, whatever the job might be, mm-hmm. was the one thing. No matter what we were asked to do, if if we if we have all the tools to do it, and if we didn't, we we shouldn't be doing it. Uh, I always look also always look for ways to make us as a unit, my platoon, make us more lethal and less vulnerable. You know, whether it be the best weapons and the best protection. So, you know, anybody, you know, uh, came at us, they would pay. And if anybody came at us, we would be the least affected. Uh, I, I did everything in my power to, to make sure my men uh, were always mission prepared. They had all the knowledge they needed to have about what we we're going to do and what to expect. And any contingencies, what our fallbacks were, and 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 those kinds of things. Information that I thought it was important. I always kept my men informed because I think that they uh, they felt more comfortable knowing what was going on, and then uh, that made them emotionally more uh, more comfortable. Yeah, I think that's something a soldier likes. He likes being told what is actually going on. Because I think there's so many cases of where you're just sort of told what to do. It's like, why are we doing this? Well, you don't need to ask why. You just need to do it, don't you? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, the other thing is, too, is that, you know, the, the leadership is tentative. Uh, I might be a leader one minute and I might be dead the next. Yeah. And my guys need to know the whys and wherefores for what's going on. And it could be not just the, squ- the next guy down. The next guy down is a platoon leader or platoon sergeant, then the squad leaders. But we a lot of times platoons are led by the individual soldier because every all the leadership has been wounded or dead. Yeah. So and I tried to make sure my guys were aware of what's going on. I taught all my squad leaders how to call in artillery, uh, helicopters, and jets. So everybody knew what was going on. So if something happened to me, we weren't dead in the water. Yeah. Uh, the other thing too is um, uh, I listened to my men. I, I like I said earlier, mm-hmm. I said I didn't lead by committee. It wasn't one where I took a vote and said, okay, what do you want to do, guys? But I made sure that I took advice and listened to advice from my guys. I didn't always operate on their advice, but I took that advice in. Uh, so I understood what their concerns were and what their thoughts were. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't and I would not, never uh, uh, let my men be the uh, scapegoats or the stepping stones for my commanders. Mm-hmm. Is that we wouldn't do things for other people to look good. If, 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 we, if our mission was to get something done, it was to get something done. It wasn't to, to glorify somebody else. Yeah. So I wouldn't put my men in a position uh, to be somebody else's scapegoat. Because when you say about when you were uh, like sort of listening to the uh, sort of experience of your men, uh, I suppose a lot of that also would come from your platoon sergeant as well. So I remember you saying that you. Uh, he was actually a very good mentor when you first arrived, wasn't he? Well, yeah, I, I um, you know, like I said, I, it's both goes both ways. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that those are the kind of things. And, and the one thing that the, the, there's a, when I said, make, look for things to make us most, most lethal. One of the things I, I, I did, I, I, I was, and I thought it was a, a good idea. And when we first got there, we used, our magazines and bandoliers. Uh-huh. And uh, in a firefight, 
getting a, a loaded magazine out of a bandolier can be really slow. And in a firefight, you wanna have control fire, but you don't wanna struggle to keep the, the volume of fire going. So you wanna be able to put, you wanna be able to control the volume of fire. If it needs to be intense, you want it to be intense. Mm-hmm. So I, what I did is I said, if we can put, we put all our magazines, I think almost 27 plus magazines, fit in an empty Claymore bag perfectly. And when you were in a firefight, you could get those magazines out of a Claymore bag and into your M16 super fast. And so we got rid of, you would get your bandolier, you take the actual ammo out, load your magazine, discard the bandolier and put your magazines in a Claymore bag. And I didn't, and I say made us more lethal, that made us more lethal because that allowed us to really, to, like I said, to, to put out an intense volume of fire and outshoot the enemy, which that, in, I think in itself, made us more lethal because, you know, if your enemy is getting shot at, he's got his head down, and that allows us you to, to advance on the enemy, or allowed us to advance on the enemy, and then to over, you know, overcome the battle. Yeah, well, just well, just by doing that, you know, you you save, like you're saying, you you save valuable seconds. You you know, yeah. it's it's well, them, isn't it? It's uh, you know, every yeah, second I, 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 when you when you when you're in that situation, every second counts. Even like with the reload, you know, it's and you, you found an effective way to make that quicker. Well, like I said, I was I looked at it from the standpoint of, of like I said earlier, is that why when it became a lieutenant in the first place or an officer in the first place is that is that <laughs> I don't want an idiot telling me what to do I want to be the idiot telling somebody else what to do yeah uh, <laughs> I don't want some I want my men to be I don't want I want to lead my men in a way that I want I want to be led myself yeah but that way I don't I don't want to do stupid things. And, and I don't want uh, my men to think they're being led by a stupid person. So I want to do things and leading my men that are as sound as I can possibly do as a leader. Absolutely. So, so say um, a, uh, a young officer graduate, um, a young second lieutenant knocked on your door today um, and said to you, what advice could you give me? What, what would you say to that? Uh, young officer from your experience that you you gained well, like i said i i, I thought our, our the training the army uh, provided was really well so i'd say uh use what you've been taught and always apply to common apply common sense to the situation you encounter and apply that training to uh, pay attention to your men the best with the you know the most experienced uh they're going to be the best mentors uh, in combat, move to the point of contact and lead by example. Um, be fair. Uh, take care of you, me, and, and your men, and they'll take care of you. And uh, when your time in your field is done, never volunteer to go back unless, unless there's a, you're, 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 There'll be something that tells you that you must. That's what I say. Because I was always told never go back to the field, but I did. Mm. A a few times, but it was, but I, like I said, I knew I had to, and it was, it was a must. That's, um, that's very, very sound advice, I think, John. Yeah, I'd say that 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 pretty much for me, that, that, well, yeah. Those are the things that I think that were important to me and and, past, and these aren't my ideas. I mean, I, I, I can, these are ideas that it came to me from much smarter people. And, and mm. uh, I, I tried to apply those to my own career as a lieutenant or a platoon leader. Yeah. I think that those are the things that I, I'd want to pass on to, the, to those that follow me because I think that they helped me survive and they helped me, you know, Get through my my processes as a as a young, young lieutenant. To, yeah, they worked. Well, I definitely think that would be well. What you say is it's absolutely true. Um, what you said, there's no 
no dispute with it at all, I don't think. It's, it's very, very, very good advice. <laughs> when, um, when your tour came to an end in Vietnam, um, did you get told the date you was um, going home or was it a case of someone just come up to you and say, it's time for you to go, Chopper, Chopper's leaving, it's time for you to get out of here? <laughs> Oh, we, I knew my, we all have a date and we knew that we were there and we were, we were advised in advance of our actual, they call it the D-Rose date, your date that you're returning to the, the state. So I knew that it was, yep. it was imminent and, uh, and it was almost, almost cartoon-like the way my, my conclusion uh, ended. Uh, at <laughs> my last day, I, I took a, a battalion formation and called the, the battalion, with, which is the, composed of all the people that are back in the rear, the clerks, cooks, uh, all sundry personnel, which is probably maybe a couple hundred people that support the battalion. So I, uh, I was in charge of the battalion that my last day. So I called the battalion to attention. And we, there's a, and this probably won't make any sense to anybody that, uh, that maybe you. But so we went through the process where I go, battalion, and then the next person down goes, company. The next one down goes, platoon, squad, fire team, individual, and attention. And then I dismissed the battalion, and everybody got a good laugh out of that. <laughs> but, uh, no, yeah, yeah, we we all knew, or everybody that's going to leave knows their date, their D-Rose date, uh, and they know when to expect that they're going to be headed home. And so you have to do all this. There's a lot of paperwork you have to have completed uh, before you process out. So I knew in, in advance when I was leaving, and uh, uh, in that actuality. So, but ahead of that, I uh, I had. Uh, I was out of out of the field already. I had met in advance that I met my uh, my uh, replacement, uh, my platoon uh, replacement, when I had got ready to leave the platoon. And he was a, a lieutenant uh, in a company in country a couple of months. He's a young first lieutenant from Texas who had been in country as a uh, a uh, MP officer who worked with uh, convoy security. Uh, and he was kind of a go-getter. Uh, you know, thought he was gonna win the war and uh, wound up uh, getting severely wounded and getting two guys killed and doing something he was told to do that's really stupid. Wow. And uh, you know, he, didn't, he didn't last very long. And he was replaced mm. by our group. A really good lieutenant that I'm still in touch with today. Uh huh. But yeah, so yeah, I, I did meet him, and unfortunately, he didn't. Uh, he didn't work out. And again, it goes back to this kind of what I said earlier: is that you got to uh, use common sense in combat, and there's things you just you just don't do. Oh yeah. And, uh, you, you, Nobody is faster than a bullet. No. But anyway, yeah, um, yeah. So we, uh, yeah, I got ready to leave, and uh, I felt that I had done um, done the job I was intended there to sent there to do. I, uh, I, uh, my men got together and, and purchased a thirty-eight caliber custom Smith and Wesson pistol and presented it to me. Uh, which to me, I think that I, I tell any, that's another thing I tell a lieutenant, you're there, you know, in, in combat anyway, uh, to do a job. And your men, when your men do something to, to tell you that you, you've done it, your job well, that, that pistol was a job, the presentation of the pistol was an indication that I, by my men's standard, standards, that I did the job well, the job at least completed my assignment. 
And then my battalion commander had asked me to remain in the military and go on to a, a, a staff school to advance my uh, officer skills and so forth. So above me and below me, uh, I was recognized as at least I accomplished what I was there to do. So I felt good about that. So all in all, from my military career, uh, I felt that uh, I was pleased. I mean, you know, if there's things I could do over again, oh yeah, certainly. Mm. Do I have regrets? Oh, you know, big bucket full. Uh, <laughs> I have joyful moments. Yeah, I had tons. I I don't regret my military career at all. I, you know, I, when I repeat what I did, I did yeah. doubt that. Um, but uh, yeah, I, uh, it was an experience that uh, I cherish. Uh, there are people that uh, met some of the best people imaginable. I met some of the worst people imaginable. Mm. So it was, uh, it was a, a you know wild ride, uh, and for, for the most part, a, a truly rewarding ride. Yeah, I think um, you sort of summed it up with the the respect your men had for you for them to actually get a custom made pistol and present it to you. I think that's, uh, you know, that, that, that really did show their admiration for you. Yeah. I, 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 with it, unfortunately the pistol was a serial numbered item, which oh. was, it was unfortunate. I couldn't bring it home with me. I've got photographs of it. In the yeah. Um, uh, which is good, but it's it's not the, the, the pistol itself. Yeah. But all the guys that I that that that, that, that uh, did that, I I know today, and, and uh, I but it was a thought that counts, and I, I like I said, I think that that uh, and sometimes that's all you do have is like it's like memories. Sometimes all you have are, are the memories, and so those memories and those thoughts are uh, will stay with me until uh, the rest of my life. Oh yeah. And um, and I like I said I. I feel really very, very good about that part. Um, uh, so yeah, it it it, um, it it all you know all in all, it's uh, the military for me was a, a, a mixed bag, you know, highs and lows. Um, but I, I, it's always it's also it's a chapter. I I, I not I try to tell people. Uh, Vietnam didn't define me. It, it, it shaped many aspects mm. of who I am. Uh, I, I, there are many we, we all have many chapters in our lives. Vietnam is one of the chapters in my life. Uh, I have many fond memories of my military career. Like more laughs than tears. Um, I, uh, yeah, it's, it, was, uh, it, was, it was a wild ride. There were yeah. Bitterness. Well, a year, a year is a long time, isn't it, John? Yeah. Uh, when I left uh, Vietnam, I, my military career was actually uh, I had two weeks left in my, my military assignment. So when I landed in uh, the United States, in California, uh, I had two weeks left in the military. So in those two weeks, it took me to locate my records and, and process everything. Uh, I, it took me two weeks to get out of the Army. So in Two weeks after leaving Vietnam, I was a civilian again, and uh, you know, back to where I was uh, roughly uh, three years and and uh, two months before. You know, a little wiser, a little older, a few more hairs in my mustache, and uh, so John, you've uh, you've now completed your twelve month tour of Vietnam, um, and you've made your way home, uh, and uh, very quick turnaround, I have to say, two weeks. Land, landing back in the states, and then two weeks later, you're back out in civilian life. Yeah, it uh, it all happened, uh, you know, really quickly. I was really prepared to to, to come home and uh, fit right back in. I, I guess I was lucky in, in being in the from the West Coast and the, the attitudes in the West Coast. I know uh, a lot of guys had issues with. Um, you know, coming home to you know, a culture that 
that saw Vietnam and, oh, you guys lost the war and you were baby killers and drug addicts and all that. You know, for me, it was almost like I had been away, like, you know, I had been on an assignment somewhere in a job or, or I'd been, you know, just somehow away. And it wasn't like I'd been, you, know, you were in combat or you just, there was no, um, uh, I, I didn't have anybody you know, laying a guilt trip on me or, or that I was a lesser than because of Vietnam vet. Um, you know, uh, my family and friends, uh, it just kind of like I resumed right where I left off. And so I felt really good about that. And it was really easy. So um, and I didn't, uh, didn't have a trouble or a problem uh, getting right back into the groove. Oh, brilliant. So when you got back into your civilian life, did you keep in contact with the lads who were still in your platoon serving over in Vietnam? I'm sorry, Peter. Um, I said, um, so now you're back in civilian life. Did you keep in contact with the blokes who are your guys from your platoon um, who were still, still on tour? Initially, uh, I, I, when I first got back, I wrote letters for a few years, wrote back to the guys I had addresses. Before I left Vietnam, I had had a uh, ad, small address book. And for a lot of the guys, I had taken their addresses. Some uh, they had civilian addresses, and some uh, they had uh, uh, military addresses. Their next assignment. So for a few years after that, uh, I wrote letters and so forth. And then just you know, life moved on, and uh, it kind of dropped off. And then uh, you know, uh, for just a huge gap of years, I guess from probably nineteen seventy three or four to about 1980-something, uh, 90-something, 80-something. Uh, there was, you know, no contact. Then um, I saw a, uh, uh, a uh, it was a reunion back in Georgia. Uh, and, uh, I didn't attend it, but it was a, a reunion. And uh, the guys that were from another unit, and I thought, well, that was really cool. I, I said, you know, I'd, I'd like to get together with my guys. And, um, but, and also, to the internet had just you know, come into play. And before that, there, there really would be no you know, way other than hiring a, you know, a detective to try to track all these people down. I, I couldn't think of any way to do it. And the, the resources and the cost would be, you know, astronomical but with the internet uh and my address book and then i, I contact another guy right off where he had an address book uh we started getting all the guys together so uh in, uh, in 2005 we got uh, the first reunion together with the guys at the, the whole company charlie company um and uh, got everybody together, or most of the guys together. I'd say everybody, not all the guys, but as many of the guys as we could find. And uh, we uh, got them together. And every two years since then, uh, we've been having reunions. And uh, yeah, it's great. The first reunion was really kind of funny is that we'd see uh, maybe two guys would meet where we could see the looks on each guy's face. One guy would recognize the other guy. And the other guy would have no clue who he's looking at. And one guy's sitting there just with this huge grin of joy on his face. And the other guy with a look of curiosity. And then finally, the curious look would change to recognition. And they'd hug and tears would be shed and this and that. And it's just, it was great. And the first reunion, and, and, and on all of them, great. But the first reunion just, uh, it was it was amazing. It was just uh you know, uh, unfortunately, we, we wish when we look back on it, we would have filmed the whole thing. or had a mm. you know videographer there just to capture the moments because it was it was pretty phenomenal. So, but yeah, we do. Uh, we get together. We enjoy each other. We're, we're uh, passing along uh, in Fiddler's Green like it's going out of style. We're losing guys every year, and we're not getting any younger. So, but it's it's really. Um, a reward after not seeing these guys for so many years to, to see him again. Yeah, I mean, it's great because you all, 
all the memories will start going back as well, or like little anecdotes and things like some people might have forgotten about. Well, it's an interesting kind of phenomenon is that uh, we all have these memories that are almost 50 years old and more. And um, you get, you know, maybe a room full of us together, six, seven or more of us together. We talk about a particular incident or a firefight or activity or whatever. And we start to talk and that there's a, I'm not sure if it's Aesop or there's a story about these seven guys, I believe it is, seven or nine, that are all touching an elephant. And one's got the trunk and one's got the ear and one's got the leg and one's got the, the side and one's got the tail. And they're all describing an element that looks different. And he's, he's describing the elephant in a different way because they each got a different part. We're each describing that particular event in Vietnam in a slightly different way because our memories see that, that event of almost 50 years ago or more. Yeah. But all, the other thing as well, you're, you're all seeing it from different angles as well, aren't okay. you? And we, we talk through that and, and we... Mm. We find out that it wasn't Bob or Joe in the event; it was Ed and Ted, and or Dick and Jerry, and um, we refine that conversation to the point now where we've got the event down to the right time, the right people, and the right sequence. And it takes uh, that group of us to get together and hash out the details of that event. So, for the first few reunions, it was done. We refought the war, got all the data sorted out, and firefights and key events and so forth, the right names, the right people and so forth. Then after that, all the reunions were how the families were developing and growing and whose kids were, whose grandkids, who had grandkids and how many grandkids and who just graduated from college and this, that and the other. And um, you find that the, the people that you cherished as uh, fine young men, uh, you still cherish now as a uh, so you know, advanced senior citizens. So all, all the good people you knew back, you know, nearly fifty years ago, are still the great people that are there today. So it's 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 a re, re, it's rewarding and refreshing to know that. So oh, definitely. So when so when you uh, come like come home, was there is there any uh, mementos or souvenirs that you actually kept from your time in Vietnam or all your military career? The only thing I, that I can recall that I kept was um, I, uh, I have a, the, the issued uh, uh, first cab wallet. And within the wallet, it's a plastic sort of wallet. And the wallet is, was, this is interesting, is it's the, it has pockets in it, plastic pockets. They're essentially a Ziploc pocket. They're right. the very first Ziploc that I've ever seen. These, this, these oh, Ziplocs are a 50 year old you know, concept or a 50 plus year old concept because uh, they allowed you to put a photograph or money or anything you want to put inside each of these. I think there's four or five pockets in that. Uh, I kept that. I kept on my short timers calendar. I kept a small medallion that I got uh, when I when I first got there, somebody uh, was leaving and had this medallion their whole tour and gave it to me and said, I hope it brings you good luck. You give it to somebody else and I forgot it and it was in my wallet. I should have passed it on to somebody else for their tour. But uh, no, I, uh, and I had a, a the Lord's Prayer in Spanish uh, that was again another thing passed along to me. So I, the, that wallet was the only real souvenir, and the army field jacket was the only thing that I kept uh, from souvenir souvenir from Vietnam. Over uh -huh. the, my tour, I picked up a, a nine millimeter Chinese pistols, um, uh, knives, belts, uh, SKS rifles. I picked up multiple things, and I just gave them away. I, the, I'm not a very superstitious person in life over my, my lifetime, mm -hmm. but in Vietnam, anytime I picked up a, a souvenir and kept it for any length of time, bad things happened. So I disassociated myself with all souvenirs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I stopped picking things up. I just left them to other people or gave yeah. them away. But yeah, I just, uh, so that, yeah, the, the wallet was the only thing that I brought home. 
Oh well. So you um. So when uh, so obviously we we'll, we'll sort of go for so so that's what I want to ask John because because um, wasn't you at the <coughs> oh, excuse me. <coughs> I want to uh, I'm going to backtrack a little bit because I just okay. want to uh, get sort of right because you because you you was at the relief of K San weren't you? I'm sorry, I didn't hear that one. Um, if I'm right in think, if I'm correct in thinking, uh, you was at the relief of K San, weren't you? Uh, that was before my time. That was just before, was it? Yeah, I I arrived in uh, September of 60, 68. Right. That was, uh, yeah, that was before my time. Yeah. Oh, I thought we might have been able to get a bit in there. <laughs> rub, rub, the, <laughs> rub the Marines' noses in it. <laughs> K-San got under new management. <laughs> yeah, Courtesy yeah, of the yeah, 7th Cav. That's a <laughs> That's one photograph the Marines really, really don't like to look at. So. <laughs> yeah. K-San under new management, courtesy of the 7th Cavalry. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, uh, that, uh, that's a, a cherished first cab photograph. Yeah, I bet. So if we, so if we advance a good few years now, um, so you first hear of some lunatics in the United Kingdom <laughs> who um, have, a, have an interest in the Vietnam War. But more importantly, these blokes, they dress up in the, dress up in the same clothes that you wore. They've researched the conflict extensively and, uh, and they're basically telling your story, but in the UK, and these are, Complete, well, complete foreigners, really. They, you know, these are British blokes in a well, war where their country wasn't really involved in, and you've and you've now sort of heard about these blokes for the very first time. What was your first impressions when you heard about the UK Air Cav? <laughs> oh, I was it. Uh, I guess I, I want to say I was surprised, but it wasn't really surprising because I know in, in the states there are organizations that uh, reenact. Uh, Civil War, Revolutionary War, uh, and, and World War II as well. And uh, but I don't know of any that do the Vietnam War. Uh, but yeah, I was a surprised and, and pleasantly surprised, and uh, in in a way flattered and, and nice. And I thought, it, oddly, English people showing a greater reverence for the Vietnam veterans than Americans. You know that you, you know that there somebody else would do something like that, and not somebody in, in the states. So I was very supportive, and I was very impressed. And the other thing, you know, even more so was I found that the uh, the reenactors uh, are probably, and I've been saying probably, are by and large much more aware of the histories of. Vietnam, the Vietnam mm -hmm. conflict, not just the American involvement, but prior to that, uh, many have traveled to Vietnam. Many have much more, a much greater and deeper understanding of the Vietnam experience or Vietnam conflict than a lot of Vietnam veterans themselves. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I'm you know very very pleased with the, and I've met you know uh, so many of the. Reenactors, and uh, I'll, you know, uh, I, I, I consider many of them to be my mates. You know, yeah, that they're good friends, and I really enjoy them. I uh, love the the sense of humor. I love the camaraderie. Um, I just, I, I'd say, I all plus pluses so far. So it's, uh, it's been very, very good experience for me. No, that's brilliant. Because when I, because when I first joined. The UK Air Cav, oh, we're going back many years ago now, John. Um, this has got to be, what, 10, 10 years ago um, when I joined. And uh, and that was one of the things that it was actually uh, Joe Hobdell, it was, who actually persuaded me to join. 
because um, previously I did uh, I was uh, part of a unit called the American Infantry Preservation Society that portrayed the 9th Infantry Division. Um, but then I ended up going into the World War II side of life and then wanted to come back into the Vietnam stuff. And I knew Joe from back in those days. And uh, and he was saying, oh, he goes, oh, we talked to the veterans. I went, you're kidding. He goes, no, no, no. He goes, like, the actual veterans of Charlie 2-7. I went, no. You know, honestly, we do. Um, yeah, he said, so where we're portraying sort of 68, 69, he said, we actually are in communication with the real uh, Charlie two seven blokes. I went, that's surreal. And then, then obviously, once I got into the group, uh, became a member. Um, I, I think again, it was Joe. He turned around to me, he said, "Right, these are the blokes who you need to get into contact with." And uh, lo and behold, John, you was one of the men on the contact list to say get in contact with. And uh, ever since that day, John, you've you've. Uh, You've helped me leaps and bounds with my research. Like, I think sometimes you might think over the years, it's like you've probably had some some of the most randomest questions <laughs> asked of you. <laughs> so it wasn't oh, really? uh, so long ago, maybe six months ago, we had a conversation about Kool Aid. <laughs> it's always been it's always been enjoyable. I think the exchanges have always been really, really good. I, I think that the 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 thing about it is the fact that you you guys really care. To do it the right way, hello, and to do it where the, the details make a difference, and uh, I like that. I, I, and again, I like that you take the, the time and the effort to make it uh, to make it work. Well, you know, the, like I said, I, the the questions are, are are really good because they're they show the interest that you have in getting the details correct, and uh, I, I think that's commendable. But I, like I said all the exchanges you've ever had. But the, the, the groups uh, have always been really good and, uh, again, reinforce the feeling that you guys are doing it right and have been doing it right. And uh, they've always been very, very pleasant. So we're uh, I'm always happy to, to participate. Now, honestly, you know, thank you so much for all the help that you that you give me with my research because I'm, I'm one of those living historians where – if the resource, if the resource is there, I, I use it because it's all well and good reading a history book, but that's written by a historian or it's been written by some ex-general. But to actually speak to a man that's been through it and experienced it, you know, you, that's better than any history book or any documentary that I'm ever going to come across. Yeah, I again, like I said, I I, I like the fact that. You, you, all of you, the, the green actors and, and you folks have spent a, a great deal of time in doing the research. And I think that's, that's so important. And uh, like I said, it's, it's it created a, 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 a very good atmosphere of camaraderie uh, between the vets that know you and uh, all you folks over there in the UK. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, I think we created a very good bond. I think from both sides of the channel. I think. Oh yeah, yeah. I I, I appreciate the, the, this the, the podcast, the experience uh, that to uh, be able to to, you know, to to tell the story, um, and uh, it, it's been a, a treat for me. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you. Know, thank you for for doing it because. It's it's one of those, it's it's one of those snippets that's been recorded now, and that's going to live forever. Yeah, like I said, I, I hope that uh, that I provided a, you know, what you were looking for in the podcast. Oh, and the, absolutely. Oh, it's been absolutely fantastic, John. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. But the the final question I am going to ask you, though, John, is what does being a Vietnam vet mean to you? It's a matter of, uh, of you know, pride in the guys I serve with more than anything else. I just, uh, I think I'm part of a network of, uh, of really good people. Um, it's, again, it's an element of, 
of the many elements of who I am. Um, it's an experience like uh, my youth was an experience. My two kids was, are an experience. It's all a, a, a chapter in, in, in our in our lives in my life. Um, but it uh, it is. It's when it's a a source of of, of pride. Uh, it's a, a it's a source of uh, so many things. There's it's such an emotional attachment to to that experience. Uh, obviously, with the, the the intensity that being in combat uh, represents. Um, yeah, I, um, yeah, it. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, it was about the. It's always been about the people. I I met so many people. I was so fortunate to be placed with such a a group of people that were so. When we were, uh, you know, for lack of a better description, we were an exquisite recipe. We were the right ingredients put together at the right time under the right temperature, and uh, we came out. Uh, is a nice souffle. <laughs> so it, uh, I can't think of a better way of saying it. We were, we were very fortunate to be together. Yeah, I, I think you put that beautifully. I think John. Yes. Um, yeah, I think you do. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I think that's a uh, very very yeah. That oh, I'm speechless. <laughs> 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 yeah um yeah so so with that john thank you so much for giving up your time uh for these two episodes to share your story well sort your memories uh with the with the world really well one thing peter i hope i haven't created a, an editing nightmare for you <laughs> oh no it's not not me it's steven and steve does all the editing <laughs> <laughs> You take care, and uh, if I get yeah. past, get over the pond again, across the pond again, I, I'll do my best to try to touch base with you. Oh, absolutely, and I would, and I would love to do that. Absolutely love to, as we missed, as I missed, I missed you last time when you came over, which was really unfortunate, because I was, um, yeah, I was, I was gutted when uh, Joe sent me the message and said you was coming over, and I was like, oh no, I'm away. <laughs> No but, yeah well so until next time i'll see you all later goodbye stay safe